Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks. Perhaps the last one before Christmas, perhaps not. That all depends on whether or not we get a Brexit deal. So, joining me this week, we've got founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines, and reporter Christian Calgi to go through some of the biggest stories and the most interesting ones over the last week on the Guido Forks website. And we couldn't really kick off this week without talking about that big thing that has affected the world of Westminster, perhaps more than anything else. And that was the reclassification of London from tier one, from tier two to tier three. Calgi, what happened and when? Yes, so London went into tier three this week. We, it was almost certain, we knew it was coming. What was the surprise was how quickly it came to pass. Uh, at the start of the week on Monday, uh, London MPs had a phone call uh, in the morning uh, being alerted to this, uh, that, that London was going to go into Tier 3. Uh, then there were still some questions over when exactly. There was rumours that the announcement could be made as soon as that Monday afternoon. Indeed, I got the news through on my phone as I was sat on an East Coast train leaving King's Cross for the safety of Tier 2 North Yorkshire. Uh, so they've uh, so London's got its lockdown. And then on Thursday, an additional 5.3 million people were bumped up into Tier 3, uh, which means uh, about 69.4% of the population are now in, you know, lockdowns in all but name. But there were some politicians this week who perhaps didn't take on the gravity of that reclassification. Um, there was one politician who happened to have a big goodbye tier two bash on the Tuesday night. Uh, Paul, could you talk us through this? Yes, Tobias Elwood, who has been quite um, forthright on how we've got to be compliant with all the rules, um, unfortunately attended an event for 27 people from the Iraq Business Council. Now, there is a get out for business meetings. Believe it or not, the loophole or legitimate business um, uh, uh, encouraging option allows up to 30 people to meet for a business meeting. Unfortunately for him, the Iraq Business Council said on their website that it was a Christmas party. Now, he has been uh, a bit of a thorn in the side of the government uh, particularly Pretty Patel, and she wasted no time in slapping him down uh, when she was doing an ITV breakfast interview. And I think we have the video. A dinner of 27 people, a Christmas party is an egregious breach, because that's what your colleague Tobias Elwood well, has Well, Well, it is. Of. of course it is, exactly that. And, you know, we are, I've said it, I've said it numerous times throughout this year and again today. We want people to stick with the guidance, follow the guidance, follow the laws that are in place. We want to minimise contact with public, um, because obviously it's human contact that leads to the spread of the virus, and it's important that we minimise that. Just to be clear, you think that was an egregious breach, given... Well, having dinner with, you know, outside of the rules with a large number of people is a breach of the regulations. And we should just be very clear that, you know, I say this day in, day out. I see police officers every day. I speak to police officers, you know, all the time that are having to enforce the regulations. They are enforcing egregious breaches. And on that basis, anything outside of those rules is a breach. And what should be the penalty for Mr. Elwood? Well, there are there are fixed penalty notices. I don't know the details as to where this happened or the location, but I'm sure, you know, as it is a 
breach, that, that will be followed up. Do you think it's a party disciplinary matter as well? Well, that, that is something I'm not getting into because I simply don't know the full details. Yeah, it's easy to see why Priti Patel, as someone who um, was emphasising personal responsibility this morning, or rather on Thursday morning on the media round, uh, was less than happy with Tobias Elwood for number one, not exercising personal responsibility, but number two, being one of the biggest voices at the start of the week to call for a harsher um, set of restrictions over Christmas. But it's not just the UK that's having a bit of a, a media storm and, and some problems with COVID, because this week things have really come to a head in Germany, the country of Europe that did probably the best in the first wave of the pandemic is now having one of the worst second waves. Um, it leads a, a lot of people to think actually a lot of these European countries, no matter where they fit on sort of the first or the second waves, people are going to end up in a similar place by the end of this pandemic, perhaps. Um, but what's going on in Germany right now is extraordinary. We're seeing multiple days this week of over a thousand deaths a day. And we ran an article uh, this week, highlighting uh, a, a leading opinion piece uh, of uh, Bild, the biggest selling newspaper in Germany, that admonishes the German government, um, not only for the rules that it's set out that it argues aren't being enforced strongly enough, that people aren't following, that there's trust that's been lost in the government, and therefore all the cases have spiked up, but also crucially over the vaccine rollout, because this week the first German got vaccinated in the UK. No German has been vaccinated in Germany. Indeed, no European has been vaccinated in any EU country because the EU is still waiting to roll out this vaccine because they haven't had approval yet from the EMA. They opted into this system of collective approval um, that when the, e when the UK decided that it wouldn't opt into the EU scheme, there were newspaper headlines. There was, um, uh, quite frankly, outrage that we didn't take part of this scheme but actually now it turns out that the UK not being part of that scheme and using our own domestic regulator has got the vaccine out faster and is saving more lives. Incidentally here in Ireland it's been noted in the Irish press that the first person vaccinated in uh, the UK was an Irish woman. Now some of our readers are complaining because when I said that on Twitter uh, they point out that that was she was from Enniskillen well, that is on the island of Ireland, as far as I'm concerned, so she's Irish. <laughs> but I believe the island of Ireland is within the British Isles, and therefore she's British. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think we, we're not going to dive down not, this rabbit not, hole. Let's not. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you put the border down the Irish Sea, so, you know. Gosh, it must be very frustrating to be someone in the uh, to be an elderly and vulnerable person on the uh, Republic side of the borders and having not elderly, the, Tom, and sort of having a neighbour being being vaccinated just down the road on the other side of the border. I'm um, not elderly. You need Tom. to get its act together. I mean, obviously, the the uh, situation in the north is much worse than the situation in the south because of the incompetent administration. But let's not go into it. <laughs> Right, foreign policy aside, um, what else happened this week was Our World in Data, that um, gold standard um, uh, globally used site that compares countries in terms of death rates and, and case rates, and we're very used to these graphs right now, has come out with a new graph, a new page on its website, and this is how many vaccines have been distributed by each country around the world, and this week it looks 
glorious because there is one country in the world that is deep blue for having over a hundred thousand vaccines being administered um and no other country has got any data in yet it's one of these things where we can actually take a little bit of pride in how britain is done for once in this pandemic it's have amazing the american, have the americans started vaccinating now they have but they haven't done it for a full week so they don't have the data to be submitted mm. to our world in data quite yet uh we've obviously been doing it for almost two full weeks now yeah. well and i'm I mean... amazed i'm amazed that russia hasn't registered any vaccinations given they had a 95 percent effective one about three weeks ago <laughs> well it's top secret information isn't it over there uh by the way i don't know if you people saw the story we did today thursday which is that Reuters is reporting that the EU declined to buy 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine on cost grounds. 470,000 EU citizens have died because of COVID-19 and they're arguing about the cost of vaccinations. As it stands today, nobody in the EU has received a vaccination. So I really think, oh, and they are now uh, scrambling around and panicking in the commission to get 100 million Pfizer doses. And I think the politics of this is that they were hoping to have a European vaccine. There's many, many different ones uh, on the go. And Pfizer being an American company, they were perhaps being a little bit chauvinistic, despite the fact that it's being manufactured in Belgium and the um, biotech company behind it is German domiciled. The EU politics, this is crazy. They're even saying they want to vaccinate in all European company, countries on the same day as a matter of unity. Surely, if you're really concerned, you should vaccinate as soon as possible wherever you can. It's just uh, shows how they put politics above the um, interests of their own citizens. Absolutely. One of the reasons why the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, is being so slow at approving this is it's not up to its full staff level. This was an organisation that was based in London until last year. When Brexit happened, they moved it from London to, I think, uh, Belgium. Um, Amsterdam. Or the Netherlands. Amsterdam. It was Amsterdam in the Netherlands, right. Um, same country. Uh, and and they haven't got the full staff level up now. They don't have the same competence as when it was in um, the UK. Like Amsterdam's a lovely city, but it just does, there aren't so many experts there as there are in a global city like London. So really- Take it from me, take it from me, Tom. There's a lot of people who know a lot about drugs in Amsterdam. <laughs> but they're also laid back, that's the problem. Um, I think the other, the other madness that we covered uh, briefly in a, in a piece last week uh, or two weeks ago talking about the Guardian's remain of pessimism uh, is that Europe, for, in return for Britain's participation in the European charge for a, a vaccine, wanted us to scrap the Oxford vaccine trials, which are set to provide the majority of our vaccinations. So thank God we didn't. And that follows on for them messing up joint PPE procurement which ended up them getting no ventilators in time. It is bonkers, especially because this Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at such cold temperatures. It can't be taken out of the fridge more than one or two times, I think. The logistics in terms of delivering it are really hard. It's, it's quite hard to see how you're going to get it out to some of the really quite poor Eastern European countries at the same time you're going to be delivering it in the, the rich Western European countries. Um, to, to say that that needs to happen at all at the same time or it can't happen at all is just going to cost lives. There's no doubt about it. There's a good chance that most Europeans will be vaccinated by the um, 
AstraZeneca vaccine, just because it's easy to distribute, even if it isn't quite as effective. And Britain's, uh, Britain's rollout is going very well, but uh, it wouldn't be if, if one Corbynista was in charge, uh, and that is Piers Corbyn, who this week we uh, discovered uh, a new level of uh, his anti-vaxxer uh, campaign, which was delivering leaflets in predominantly Jewish areas of North London, comparing the vaccination with Auschwitz. Um, and as you can imagine, it was not very, uh, quite distressing post for a lot of uh, locals who've uh, complained to MPs about it, but I'm not sure there's much can be done about that. I mean, distressing doesn't say the half of it. The Auschwitz Museum in Auschwitz put out a statement condemning the, the leaflet. It's just extraordinary. I, I, I don't know what went wrong with the Corbyn's parents, but they, it's just, it happens time and time again, doesn't it? They get to be, be unfairly portrayed as anti-Semitic. How can that happen? Amazing. I wonder how much contact the two men are actually in. And, and if Jeremy Corbyn hadn't uh, fell upwards into his role as an MP back in the 80s, and if he'd just stayed as a local councillor or even not that, perhaps he'd be distributing those leaflets along with his brother. Who's to say? Um, but we should probably move away from um, leaflet distribution in London and look at some regional news, because there was a Scottish nationalist member of Parliament who uh, pulled a stunt, actually, in the uh, internal market bill debate on Wednesday night. And that is that he wanted to create such a furore, such a distraction to, uh, to really send a message back home to his constituents that this is a really bad bill, a bill that protects the internal market of the United Kingdom. And he did this by grabbing the mace. Now, the last time the mace was grabbed, it's becoming slightly more common in, in, in these years, sadly. I mean, the famous time that the mace was grabbed was, of course, Michael Heseltine back in the 1970s, where he got his uh, nickname Tarzan from. Um, and then John McDonnell grabbed the mace in 2005 over Heathrow expansion. Um, and then we've had a couple of Corbynistas do it recently, but but the problem is if you do it more and more often, it loses its potency, that symbol of legislation being able to happen and, and, and taking that away. But the interesting point about it um, that we subsequently discovered is his five-day suspension is five working days. Now, he got suspended five working days from the House, but there aren't five working days of this parliamentary term left. So that is probably going to tick over into January, meaning he will be suspended without pay right the way until there is that fifth working day completed. So it, if if we don't get a parliament back up and running until sort of early to mid-January, the man's going to lose out on £7,000, which is quite an expensive uh, rate for, for disrupting parliament. That's going to hurt a Scottish man, isn't it? <laughs> it hurt anyone, I would think but to drop the mace it would have been uh, it's an amazing amount but it just i mean i guess it speaks to how overpaid mps are if if five working days is equal to seven grand no I mean, you misunderstand it's, it's five working days is going to take a month a calendar month yeah i know that but that's why he doesn't get seven grand all right <sighs> 
Well, well, enough talking about Scotland, I think, for now, because in Wales, there was another unlucky politician this week. And that's the leader of the Welsh party, who readers might remember that we ran a story um, about a few weeks ago, maybe even two months ago now, when there was the Welsh firebreak lockdown, that mightily successful uh, policy proposed by Sakir, enacted by Mark Drakeford, um, that has led to... Um, incredibly high COVID rates as soon as it was lifted. Um, Well, during that lockdown, Jane Dodds, the leader of the Welsh Lib Dems, managed to uh, rest it up in leafy Richmond in South London, um, instead of instead of being back home with her with um, with her party with her Welsh party. And, And she did a couple of media appearances pretending to be in Wales, which was a little bit, um, a little bit not on. But now she's had her comeuppance, of course, because there was the selection for the only seat in the Welsh Assembly held by the Lib Dems. So the internal Lib Dem selection, and she lost out. She was considered to be the favourite to get this seat. Obviously, she's the leader of the party, but she failed to get the seat. She failed to win the nomination this week. And I wonder how much that story had to do with it. She can always stand against Sarah Olney in uh, 2024, can't she? in uh, in richmond it's fine well she lives there enough so not far from richmond back down in downing street sw1 just a few postcodes away uh we got to see the spad uh pay list which is always eagerly awaited because we like to know who's up and who's down the there were no surprises at the top so edward lister uh was on the 140 grand uh, floor, Manira um, Mirza, who is the policy chief, she was also on 140 grand. Dan Rosenfeld, the new chief of staff, probably took a pay cut to come in on that 140 grand as well. Um, but notable, and it was widely noted, was uh, that Dominic Cummings, who made a big thing and a big play of nobody should get more than 100 grand when he worked at uh, the Vote Leave campaign and came into Downing Street on the same kind of money, got a £50,000 pay rise. I, I should say these are pay ranges. So theoretically, it's between 40 and £50,000. And nobody's explained who authorised it or when it happened. And uh, the lobby and us have asked, and we've got no answers because we don't comment on staffing matters. Um, it's, it's a little bit rich, and particularly amongst our friends in the SPAD class are very annoyed because when they went to him for raises, he turned them down. Uh, you know, uh, you know that's not the end of the story either, because it's incredibly likely that he'll get some sort of payout as well, as as well as the the pay rise. So there's another few I days. I think worth- I think that's been ruled out. The prime minister spokesman said there will be no no thirty six thousand uh, pound redundancy uh, pay. Well, at the very least, readers will be very relieved to learn that our spad list is for the first time now ordered by payband, so you can see the seniority if you are a lobbyist and need to go right to the top. I'll make you popular with the spads. <laughs> I'm very popular with the spads. <laughs> well, talking of things that cost the taxpayer too much money, um, there's been movement towards a Brexit agreement this week, Calgary. Yes, there has. On, on Wednesday morning, we uh, woke up to hear Ursula von der Leyen say that there is now a path to a deal. She did say a very narrow path, but there was one. Uh, and then again on Thursday, um, we had Michel Barnier uh, confirming that, that there has been progress. Of course, there are still 
Sticking points, um, number 10, very much stony-faced, absolutely no um, uh, confirmation of any movement on any side. But there is very much a sense now uh, in SW1 amongst Tory MPs, there's a rising optimism that a deal will be struck and there's a lot of uh, expectation management and it will be the usual thing of, you know, out of nowhere, oh, there's a deal. Um, but it, it very much depends. MPs will have to come back to um, Parliament if there is a deal and that's what we're all on edge for. Will we have to work on New on Christmas Eve, on New Year's Eve? There are certainly no other parties to go to. So. <laughs> It might be a welcome rest from the one household that we've been spending time with over Christmas. Um, but I think there are a couple of interpretations of this right now. There are a lot of people who are convinced that the that number 10 is sort of a, a so-called disaster capitalist organisation that really wants no deal and will deliver no deal because that's what it really, really wants. And then there's another group of people that say, oh, the deal's already been agreed and then this is all theatre. I don't think either of those assessments are true because ultimately when you look at the people in the future relationship unit in number 10 they are proper true believers of the project there are people working in that um in that working group who who literally resigned their membership of the conservative party over theresa may's deal in the first place this is not going to be the same situation that the country found itself in when we had a hung parliament and a jittery executive i think ultimately we're going to get something that is a proper brexit or not at all and we at guido forks have developed a test to uh to find out if we would be willing to back any future agreement as one has been sort of inching towards us we want to know if we'll be able to repeal existing EU legislation. That's really important to making Brexit a success. So we've developed the cookie test. Will the cookie crumble? The EU passed a directive in 2011 forcing all websites to have a really annoying little button saying, do you accept cookies? Now, the vast majority of the country don't know what a cookie is. Most people um, just click accept anyway and don't think anything of it. Certainly don't read the terms and conditions. It's one of those useless, expensive, wasteful and annoying EU regulations. If the deal allows us to repeal that, and, theref and, and thereby, by implication, many, many others, that's a deal worth having, that's a sovereign deal. That's made it all worthwhile for me, that's for certain. I mean, it's, it's quite simple, you should have a one-off thing in your browser where you say you accept you know, cookies or not, and that's it. We should, we should stress at this point, this isn't our obsession with the cookie button. This is an illustrative example of an EU, reg like, um, of an EU regulation. Of course, there are far more benefits to Brexit than just repealing the cookie. I feel for Paul, it's very liter literal, and for you, it's a theoretical test. <laughs> this is it. This is what Brexit means to me. It's tangible. That is worth, it's worth the four years of struggle, just for that. <laughs> Talking of struggle... <laughs> there, was a story. there was a story that we were not expecting today. Uh, that was um, Paul Joseph Watson, well-known alt-right character, um, tweeted that if you wear a mask, it's like your girlfriend doing you up the ass. And Edwina Curry, bless her cotton socks, tweeted, idiot, try it, you might enjoy it. And we all immediately had the same thoughts. John Major. <laughs> well, Happy Christmas, I think, everyone. 
I think the less the less said about that, the better. Um, I think I think there are slightly too many puns in that article. If that's if that's a possibility, <laughs> don't um, don't Google it. Don't Google pegging if you don't want to know. <laughs> right. Well, on that note, I think that that's probably enough stories for us to discuss. But we are getting very close to Christmas. It's only a week away. Um, and Calgi, I think you've brought along a hat. Have I? <laughs> yeah. I was told to find a hat. I found a hat. It doesn't fit, but it does say naughty on it. Very uh, good. Tom, what's the jumper? Show us your jumper, Tom. Yeah, the reason why I'm in um, this is this is obviously terrible if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or or an audio version of this. <laughs> this is your incentive to go and watch the YouTube video. Um, I'm wearing a jumper rather than a nice shirt, and it's it's got some nice regalia there. It says "Merry Brexmas," which I think this Christmas is perhaps more apt than last, even, which is what I bought it for. Tom, I've got you a present for Christmas. Wow! Do you want to know what's in it, or shall we make it a surprise? Oh, you know what? Let's yeah, let's make it a surprise. Shall we open it next time on Guido Talks? We'll open it next time then. All right, cracking! Thank you for watching, and remember to subscribe, whether it be on Apple Podcasts, whether it be wherever you get your podcasts, or on YouTube. Follow us for every week your weekly digest of all that's going on in Westminster and Guido Land. Bye.